0: Welcome back to another edition of Allegedly with Bo and Ryan. I'm Ryan, and with me, as always, is Bo the Magnificent. <laughs>
1: oh, well, thank you for that auspicious title, Mr. Ryan. Of course. I appreciate that. Always great to be here. And yeah, we've been talking lately about money in the entertainment industry, right? It's obviously a big source of conversation with all these strikes going on. So I want to kind of talk about today. If you're in the entertainment industry, and you want to make certain that you are getting the money to which you're entitled, or, or even worse, you're not the next one getting sued, <laughs> then you have come to the right place today.
0: For sure. Today, we're delving deep into the deceptive world of Hollywood accounting. <laughs> it's all about movies, missing money, and high-profile cases. So get your calculators ready because we're in for a doozy of an episode. But before we get too far in today's show, Bo, could you break down exactly what Hollywood accounting is?
1: Oh, man. Well, you know how in Harry Potter, they have like the uh, professor of dark arts? Of course. (laughs) Hollywood accounting is kind of the dark arts of accounting. It's, It's when a movie gets made, and they report that the movie then it made millions and millions and millions at the box office. But technically, according to Hollywood accounting, that movie didn't make a single penny. Well, Hollywood accounting is what's used to ensure that those people who are entitled to a percentage of the net profits don't ever see a dime. That is so rough. <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, think about it like this. Okay, so let's say you remember my daughter and her friend, when they were young, they ran a little lemonade stand. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Best damn lemonade in town, right? (laughs) Exactly. But so let's say that um, the two of them decide that they are going to just split the profits from the lemonade stand 50-50. Okay. My daughter's name is Alex. Okay, so now let's say that Alex decides She's going to form a company called Alex Inc., okay? Yep. And she is then going, Alex Inc. is then going to sell all of the lemons, all of the water, all of the cups, the pitcher, everything to the lemonade stand for it just happens to be the exact same price as Every single dime they made selling the lemonade. Wow. (laughs) And so, and you know, that was determined at the end, (laughs) not in the beginning. So, obviously, the lemonade stand never saw one penny of profit, so her partner is never owed a dime because they were going to split the profits 50-50. So, it's basically like playing hide-and-seek, but with profits. Well, (laughs) exactly. And that's how movies, we were just talking about Harry Potter, The fifth Harry Potter film, for example, had a budget of one hundred and fifty million dollars, had a global box office of over nine hundred million on a one hundred and fifty million dollar budget, almost made a billion dollars. Wow. Yet still magically reported a loss Of $167 million. (laughs)
0: Ouch. Well, you know what I say to that? Zero points for Gryffindor. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Lucky for us, though, we have you, Bo, our resident film and television expert, to provide us with some actionable advice on how to navigate around Hollywood accounting and all this foolishness. Well, with pleasure, because it does
1: come up all the time. And there are some solutions. There are ways to guard against it. So... Mm -hmm. Let's, let's go with story time, Ryan. I, I love it. Several years back, if I represented a very talented, up-and-coming producer. I'm going to call her Mia, okay? Now, Mia was approached to produce an adaptation of a best-selling novel. Everything seemed like it was perfectly aligned. Stars were aligned for her big break. The studio was excited. Mia was absolutely thrilled. And I'm going through this contract, and that's when we reach the compensation clause. Okay. Now, the only thing the studio was offering Mia in this contract was a slice of the net profits. Oh, that's it. <laughs> now, it sounds enticing on the surface, especially when you're a novice and you've got the, you know, you truly believe in this project and you think it's going to make millions and millions. Imagine a percentage of a Hollywood blockbuster's earnings. You know, I mean, th- in your mind, you're thinking, sounds great. Yeah, it could be millions. But obviously, knowing as I did the countless horror stories of Hollywood accounting, those alarm bells immediately started ringing. So I shared a piece of advice with Mia that I share with clients routinely. Always proceed with extreme caution if you're being offered compensation in the form of net profits. Okay. Net profits, if, if you're just going to put a very simple definition on it, that's what's left over after all expenses are deducted. And sometimes that even includes losses from other films. But trust me, studios are experts in inflating expenses to the point where there will never, ever Ever be a single penny left over in net profits? You will be waiting forever to collect if you have a percentage of the net profits.
0: So that deal that Amia's originally offered, not so great. No, it was, she she never
1: would have seen anything. So so what did we do? We went back and we negotiated a better deal for Mia. We asked first of all, most importantly, we asked for gross profit participation. We also asked for auditing rights, and we also asked for minimum guaranteed compensation. And this is why all three of those things are important. Okay, first, instead of net profits, you always ask for a percentage of the gross profits or the gross revenue. This is a share of all the box office collections, all the money made from a movie before the costs are deducted. Now, you're going to negotiate a much smaller percentage in gross than you would in net, but it's going to be far more lucrative. You're actually going to get money from that. If the studio does insist on net profits, which is certainly happens fairly frequently, you got to make certain that the definition of net profits is very narrowly tailored, that there's a cap on exactly what can be deducted as expenses. That way, you can ensure they don't pile up absurd cost after cost after cost that eats away everything and ensures that you don't have any earnings.
0: Or or even take turkeys from other movies and, and apply that to your film.
1: Exactly. So the definition of net profits is absolutely crucial. That brings me to that second point about auditing you've got to make certain that the contract allows you or, or any entity that you nominate the right to audit the studio's books. This keeps them honest and it allows you to trace every single penny. Make Makes sense. sense. Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, you want to be able to make certain that it's accurate. Finally, if you're getting a slice of the profits, you always want to ask for either an upfront payment or at the very least, a minimum guarantee. So that's going to ensure that you get paid regardless of how well the movie performs or how the studio ends up defining profits. Then, I guess the last point, you you also want to understand how the film is going to be distributed because that's another source where you see these numbers really getting fudged. Deals with sister companies or companies related to the studio that actually produced it, that's going to mean reduced profits. So you want to ensure that the studio can't undersell the distribution rights to a related company because only the studio benefits in that arrangement, not the actors, anyone else that's engaged in profit participation. Gotcha. So going back to Mia, well, we negotiated ultimately a blend of a decent upfront payment and a small percentage of the gross revenues as opposed to net. And we also got the audit rights in there. So her film went on to become actually a pretty big hit. And she didn't have to wait for those mythical net profits to start rolling in before she actually saw money and got paid. So listen. Take it from me. I have seen it over and over and over. If you are navigating the treacherous waters of a Hollywood contract, you want to ensure that the light at the end of the tunnel is not just an illusion.
0: You mean like <laughs> Wile a Coyote painting a tunnel, but it's really a rock. Yeah, exactly right. You understand the
1: terms. Consult with professionals and make certain that you're going to be rewarded for the hard work you put in.
0: I love that. Thanks, Bo. So essentially, when in doubt, call Bo and Schmidt and ask for you, Bo. Well, look, I, I
1: I don't want to say I'm the only person they should call. They can also call and ask for Charles. <laughs> <laughs> so, but exactly. Give us a call. I'll take it from there. I'll make certain that you're protected.
0: Awesome. So now that we've got some background on this Hollywood accounting, I thought it'd be fun to explore some of the most public and hotly contested Hollywood accounting disputes of all time. There's some really good ones. Oh, man,
1: there are so many. You know, my favorite, I'll I'll go first, Darth Vader. (laughs) (laughs) Darth Vader was played by a guy physically, at least. I mean, everybody knows his voice was James Earl Jones. Um, We've actually talked about that before. But his physically, his body was portrayed by an actor named David Prowse, okay? He was the iconic villain that you're this big, hulking presence walking down the hall.
0: Like the guy when he takes his mask off, he's the gross-looking dude. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm I'm, going to guess that they might have used some prosthetics or makeup
1: there, but not saying David Prowse was necessarily gross, but... uh, Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) But... You know, he was very vocal about the problems he ran into with Hollywood accounting in these movies. So in an interview with Equity Magazine, he said that he had never seen one single residual payment for his work in Return of the Jedi, which is obviously the third film in the original trilogy. Return of the Jedi, Ryan, has technically never once posted a profit to this day.
0: (laughs) How on earth is that even possible?
1: I mean, the notion that Return of the Jedi was not a profitable film seems outrageous, considering that the film, way back when it was released, grossed more than $500 million worldwide, which, adjusted for inflation, would be about $1.4 billion today. Wow. (laughs) But thanks to Hollywood Accounting, Prowse was absolutely right. The amount of revenue generated by the film technically has never surpassed the amount of expenses that they claim. So in that article is great. Prowse gave this advice to young actors. He said, there's a big difference in having a share of gross profits and having a share of the net profit. It is a huge difference all in that one word. Sometimes with the net profit, with all the expenses and so on, it really ends, it seems you end up paying them. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, now Granted, that interview was given in 20, uh, I think it was 2009. But that was still 26 years after the film was released. And still the film has not broke even. So, you know, it's just going to get worse in the streaming age. Because now no one's seeing residuals at
0: all, basically. No kidding. I mean, we've been talking about how we're in the most depressing time that has ever existed for active residuals. And we hope that the strike will result in some meaningful pay raises. But I think the heyday of these big payouts may be behind us. Yeah, well, let's hope not. But I mean, that that's one of the reasons they're out there right now with the signs. For sure. Well, I've got one. So back in 2002, Marvel Studios wasn't quite the media giant they are today. And there certainly was no MCU. That same year was the very first Spider-Man film starring Tobey Maguire. Now, this movie was a huge hit, of course. It grossed $821 million globally. But the creator of Spider-Man characters never saw a dime. Stan Lee is, of course, who we're talking about. The only problem this year, Stan Lee had a contract with Marvel Enterprises, Inc., the holding company that owned everything Marvel, And under that contract, he was entitled to a profit participation equal to 10% of all profits from any live action or animated television or film project utilizing Marvel characters, including ancillary rights such as merchandising. So a pretty sweet deal. I mean, it would sound like it on paper. (laughs) Well, here's the problem. The term profits was not defined at all in this contract. If, if, If
1: the listeners could see me. I am legitimately facepalming.
0: <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't understand with that much money at play. But predictably, Marvel claimed that the use of the word profits was intended to mean net profits, and since the film had not yet turned a profit, thanks to Hollywood accounting, Lee wasn't owed anything. Well, Lee filed suit, and the, and the argued that the word profit, of course, meant gross profits. The court agreed with him and ultimately awarded him $10 million in damages. Well, I'm going to tell you, honestly,
1: it sounds like Stan Lee got really lucky there because that just as easily could have gone the other way. For sure. With that much money at stake, listen, it is insane that not a single one of those lawyers on either side caught the fact that profits was not defined or clarified. They made mistake number one. They did not hire us. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right, let me let me give you another one. Have uh, you ever heard of Art Buckwall? I that name sounds super familiar, but I can't can't point it. <clears throat> well, he's a writer, and he wrote a treatment, and he pitched it to Paramount. Now, a, a, a film treatment. Uh, if you if you don't know, that's just a summary of a film or a television show that a writer will use in order to sell a project prior to writing the full script. Okay. Now, the treatment that Art Buckwald presented to Paramount, it told the story of a king from a foreign land who visits the United States to find a wife. Now, Paramount was intrigued. They entered into a contract with Buckwald, which essentially promised that if Paramount made a movie based on that treatment, that Buckwald would receive 1.5% of the net profits. Okay. Well, you could probably see where this is going. Not too much <laughs> later, <laughs> Paramount released Coming to America, starring Eddie Murphy, a film with a story identical to Buckwald's treatment. Yeah, sounds like it. But the studio claimed sorry, Art. <laughs> Eddie Murphy wrote coming to America, thus, you're not entitled to anything. (laughs) Man. (laughs) So, Buckwald consulted an attorney. They sent Paramount. This is one of my favorite parts of the story. Okay. The attorney did the right thing. A lot of times, as lawyers, we know you don't have to go out of the gate just guns blazing. A lot of times, you can reach out to the other side. You could say, look, we've got this dispute. We'd like to work it out before having to you know, go to court and have all these expenses of litigation, you know, all these fights. Let's just try to nip it in the bud. Let's let's work it out early. Right. So that's what Buckwalt's lawyer did here. They sent Paramount a copy of the complaint before it was filed, said, look, we don't want to file this. Let's just enter into settlement discussions. Well, <laughs> Paramount, to say the least, was Unaffected and unimpressed. <laughs> so, you know what they did? What they do. <laughs> so, upon receiving the complaint, one of the Paramount executives allegedly sent Buckwald a bottle of champagne and a tape of a song from the musical Guys and Dolls called Sue Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, be careful what you wish for because Buckwald did sue Paramount and won. And the court ultimately found that coming to America was indeed based upon his treatment and that Paramount owed him 1.5% of the net profits. But, unfortunately, because it was net profits, the battle's only half over at that point because Paramount, to the surprise of absolutely no one, turned around and claimed that the film, which had a, global box office of almost $300 million, had not turned a profit. Thus, he was still
0: entitled to nothing. That is so rough. And that's where things get interesting for our discussion. Buckwall then hires an accounting firm to audit Paramount's books. And finding an accounting firm itself proved to be incredibly difficult. Allegedly, Paramount had pressured and conflicted out just about every major Hollywood accounting firm to keep from them from working with Buckwald. So finally, he finds a firm up for the task, but Paramount are just real dicks. <laughs> they force the auditors to perform the audit at their own headquarters and require them to adhere to these incredibly strict guidelines, which even prohibited them from using the restroom or getting up to get a cup of coffee without a Paramount-approved escort. <laughs> they end up enduring these repressive conditions it proved to be worth it when the auditors discovered that Paramount had failed to completely cover their tracks when using two different accounting softwares. This is, <laughs> this is pretty bad. So, apparently, Paramount had used two softwares to calculate the film's profits and losses. One system used the classic Hollywood accounting tricks of charging the film's individual corporation an outrageous fee intended to make it almost impossible to achieve any net profits. The problem is they had another system oh boy. and the other system, which was mainly used to show Paramount stockholders, just how much money the company was making that calculation subtracted only the legitimate expenses from the film's profits. In other words, they didn't deceptively charge the film's individual corporation an outrageous fee and just paid back their out of pocket expenses. So, In an attempt to ease the minds and shareholders who might worry about the company being mismanaged, Paramount used the second accounting system to essentially say, hey, don't worry. It's all smoke and mirrors. We still have plenty of money rolling in.
1: (laughs) Oh, boy. I cannot see this ending well.
0: (laughs) No. So, Buckwald's lawyers loved this. They took the auditor's findings to court. The judge expressed extreme distaste for Paramount's deceptive accounting Practices, but he only awarded Buckwald a little more than $150,000. Yikes. And I highly doubt that even came close to covering his legal fees. Absolutely not. I mean, that just sucks.
1: <laughs> but that's, again, that's a so called classic Hollywood accounting. Um, but, you know, lately, as we've been keeping an eye on this, there's kind of been an evolution of this that makes it even worse. Look, we're entertainment. We see more and more lately of what's known in the industry as sweetheart deals, basically studios cutting deals with their own affiliates or subsidiaries to, let's just say, balance the books.
0: It has such a cute name, (laughs) but it's really fucked up. (laughs) Now,
1: think, think about it this way. Do you ever wonder why FX, for example, gets to play some huge Marvel or Star Wars movies on TV that are just a few years old. Well, it's because FX is owned by Disney and they happen to then get the uh, distribution deal. And so they pay close to nothing for the rights to air them on television. Peter Jackson, who obviously famous director, Lord of the Rings, um, he had a Huge run-in with this situation when in the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. He received far less money than he anticipated when he directed uh, Fellowship of the Ring, so he sued New Line Cinema, claiming that they undervalued the distribution rights by prioritizing internal bids over open bidding. So basically, according to Jackson, they were keeping it all in the family. Not getting that fair market value of what it would have been. Right, exactly. So the reason that was crucial, of course, is that Jackson, per his contract, was entitled to a percentage of the sales price of the ancillary rights or the or the distribution rights. And so he claimed that this use of this closed bidding. Permitted Newline to sell those rights for far less than their fair market value. And he also claimed that doing it this way incentivized them to accept a lower price. And they didn't really lose out on anything because all those rights basically remained with themselves, their own family. Makes sense. Now, if they had accepted bids from non affiliated entities, Jackson, you know, alleged in his complaint they would have received multiple competitive bids, which would have driven the price way up. Now, there's almost no question that that would have been true. And again, we're seeing that constantly now. These production companies selling the distribution, not to themselves, but to companies for which they are affiliated or or as a subsidiary of the production company. And it's therefore far less in value than you would see out on the open market. Yikes. Well, ultimately, Peter Jackson's lawsuit proceeds to court. So luckily, he had made certain that he had one of those audit provisions in his contract that we Good were thing. discussing earlier. So and he exercised that audit provision and demanded to audit Newline's books. So Newline, to the surprise again of no one, was a little reluctant to allow Peter Jackson to review their books. So, you know what they gave him in discovery in the lawsuit? Okay. They bring in, they say, okay, here's all our accounting records. And they bring in one half full box of documents and said, this contains 100% of all the communications and documents from profit participants and any audits on any new line property Film, television soundtracks, or video games. This is everything of
0: the one of the biggest <laughs> movies of the year. Yeah, <laughs>
1: well, but the thing is, it wasn't just that movie. They said this was their audit for everything, everything they had ever done, oh, all in God. one half of one banker's box. How efficient are they? Wow, <laughs> I mean, like we literally have more paperwork on you know the the simplest contract we do basically, and I mean it was just absurd. So, well, in a subsequent deposition, an auditor employed by Newline ultimately admitted under oath that Newline had quite a bit more of accounting records. I mean, basically, a dozen full filing cabinets filled to the brim with accounting records that they had not turned over. He was like, I'm not going down for this, man. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) like Cousin (laughs) Craig. So Jackson took this evidence to the judge, sanctioned New Line to the tune of, I think it was $125,000, ordered the studio to produce all third-party audits as well as any internal audits uh, of Fellowship of the Ring, and then that's when they were able to get everything resolved. I mean, the, the suit ended up getting settled about two months later for a, quote, unquote, undisclosed amount. A but, shitload <laughs> of money. In, in other words. But and considering that, you know, Peter Jackson was then brought back to produce and direct the, I'm going to say, in your Hobbit trilogy. I mean, it does. <laughs> it does prove the age old adage, you know, business isn't personal. <laughs> so my guess is that he received exactly what he
0: asked for in the spinoff. <laughs> wow. I mean, Hollywood accounting isn't just about inflating those expenses. It's also about getting those deals, like you were saying that that really brings us to the most recent lawsuit on our list, and really the whole reason why we talked about this this show to begin with oh yeah this has been if if you go
1: to some of the major like the hollywood reporter variety deadline dead, deadline you know this has been dominating recently this lawsuit
0: oh yeah this is a good one so walt disney company is currently facing challenges on multiple fronts there's been a rough one for them including labor issues with the strikes significant losses from streaming And amidst these challenges, Disney is now being sued by TSG Entertainment, one of its biggest financial partners. So TSG Entertainment is a film financing firm. It filed a lawsuit against Disney and its subsidiary, 20th Century Studios, which was previously 20th Century Fox. And the lawsuit accuses them of both a breach of contract and of self-dealing. So the whole lawsuit revolves around Disney allegedly creating these sweetheart deals to feature these TSG-backed movies on its streaming platforms such as Disney Plus and Hulu. So this move is really aimed at increasing subscriber numbers for these platforms and minimizing profits. So TSG claims that this meaningfully and significantly deprived them of some really substantial revenue. And when you want to think about the amount of money that TSG has supported these films, it claims that it's invested over $3.3 billion with the studios for more than 140 films on 20th Century Fox, including hits like Avatar, The Way of the Water, and The Banshees of Inisherin. So they had this revenue participation agreement with 20th Century Fox, which outlined that they would receive a portion of the certain film's revenue in return for co-financing of the production. Well, you can see what's happening now. Obviously, they hired an independent auditor after noticing a steep decline in returns on their investment. And the audit the audit revealed evidence of Hollywood accounting and sweetheart deals that suggested that 20th Century Fox had underpaid TSG by at least $40 million. <laughs> the lawsuit also alleges that 20th Century did not credit TSG with the revenue as per their agreement in Wrongfully charged them millions of dollars in distribution fees. Additionally, twentieth century has even been doing these self-dealing licensing deals to its cable affiliate FX at extremely low undervalued rates. So I
1: mean, it really I mean, you're talking about it, it encapsulates everything we were talking
0: about. I mean, AK got, got old Hollywood <laughs> accounting, new Hollywood accounting, sweetheart deals. you know, Disney is just not doing so great right now. So we'll have to wait and see how this one ultimately plays out. But from where we're sitting, Doesn't look so good for the house of the mouse. (laughs) No, they are walking right into a mousetrap right now. So, you know, Bob
1: Iger was just in the news uh, about with the WGA strike. And apparently, you know, there was some real hope for a while there that some progress was being made. And apparently, you know, Bob Iger was among this handful of really high level um studio executives that were going to meet with the writers negotiating team. And most people were thinking, okay, if if this is happening, they must be serious. right?" But I I could just imagine Bob Iger just being like, okay, we're fighting war on enough fronts here. Let's get this worked out. But then it turned out that it really went nowhere and they then just released the The uh, offer that they had made to the writers publicly, which I'm I'm not I'm not going to say I'm the world's foremost expert on labor laws, but labor negotiations with labor is really supposed to be kept confidential, And so that was a major faux pas on their part. I I think the hope was that it would maybe kind of eat into the individual writers resolve like, you know, oh. Look, th- this isn't such a bad deal. Maybe we should get back to work. But it definitely had the opposite effect. It really infuriated a lot of people. So, it uh, you know, Disney is is having some issues right now.
0: <laughs> oh, 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 for sure. And I mean, that, that's it's kind of like the opposite of what you know SAG did releasing their their own deal points with the AMPTP. You know, they were doing it to kind of really galvanize their their own base. I I guess. The uh, AMPTP was releasing it like, look
1: how good this deal is. <laughs> and, you know,
0: look, I, I'm still
1: optimistic because the deal that was released did at least address pretty much all of the things that the writers were asking for. They just didn't address it enough, mm-hmm. you know, and to their liking. But the fact that they were addressing them at all, I still am going to choose to think is a good sign. But it's going to take more. It's going to take not just saying we'll do a little, but it's going to take we'll do enough. So, you know, going back to the lawsuit with Disney, you're talking preemptive bidding, which is bullshit, non-exclusive licensing deal, very low licensing fees. These are all designed to make the studios a ton of money, but they also they stir up massive controversy and they directly affect financially to the creatives who pour their heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears into every single project. I mean they these practices are designed to maximize the amount kept by the studios and minimize the amount paid out to the creative. So for all the entertainment professionals out there, the message is clear. Keep your eyes wide open. Know what you are signing and always get a good lawyer on your team.
0: Absolutely, Bo. And understanding the complexity of these contracts, the, the net profits versus gross profits and staying updated with these evolving tactics can make all the difference in the world. You know, our aim in this podcast isn't to paint a grim picture of how messed up the entertainment industry is but really to empower you to reach your fullest potential and be fairly compensated for your work. Absolutely. I mean,
1: Hollywood may be the dream factory, but some of the accounting practices, they definitely qualify as nightmares.
0: (laughs) For sure. Well, that's our show for today. To continue to receive free edge your seat legal anecdotes, please subscribe to our podcast and share with at least one friend.
1: Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Allegedly with Bowen Ryan. We'll catch you next time as we continue to explore the legal maze that is the entertainment industry.